in history, like public education history, when we're reading about the bubonic plague and influenza and they're like and then the renaissance and the artists came out and they made these things out of crazy out of their pain (laughs) out of their pain but out of these materials that no one had ever used before Mm -hmm. and i'm like holy shit we're gonna get to do that I'm going to be a part of a generation that makes something wild. Hello, and welcome to Given the Platform, the show where I give unsung people the chance to flaunt their extraordinary passions and knowledge. Do you have something that you want to be given the platform to talk about? Contact me at giventheplatform at gmail.com. As you can tell, I've decided to go with the I and the me. I think it's about time I take ownership of this podcast. <laughs> Anyways, make sure to download this podcast on whatever application you use to listen to it. And if you're on iTunes, please make sure to rate it five stars. That's just going to help this podcast get off the ground, and I'm really hoping to broadcast it to a wider audience. Also, make sure to follow Given the Platform on Instagram at Given the Platform, Facebook also at Given the Platform, Twitter at Give the Platform. Anyways, today we have on Rachel Ackerman. She is currently working at Seaview Productions in New York City. In this episode, we talk about the future of the theater industry, imposter syndrome, and the works. Enjoy! Today with me, I have Rachel Ackerman, peer, erudite, resident Jew. That's... What a what an intro. Thank you, Harrison. <laughs> Today with Rachel, of course, we're going to talk about the industry, the theater industry, of course. Rachel has a lot of experience in backstage work in theater. Rachel is a stage managing major at Syracuse University. Would you like to elaborate on your experience there? Yeah. Um, I graduated in May and... I had a really great time being able to learn about the industry from the perspective of designers, producers, directors, and really everyone who is making a show happen that isn't on stage. So would you say that your time there as a stage management major, you spent time directing there, correct? Yes, Would you say, what was your most valuable piece of information that you say you learn at university? And like what aspect did that fall into? Did you learn more about directing there or did you learn more about stage managing? I think I just learned more about being a person than like a craft. That's very liberal arts of you. (laughs) I know. I I think the thing that I fell in love with about theater is that anyone can do it if they really want to. It's about the effort and the passion. It's not as elitist as people make it out to be. And discovering that it's not about going to the best school or having the best training or being a part of the top tier of whatever, that was the most important important part because so many people get caught up in the accolades that they forget to do the work okay i have a bone to pick you with you with that one 
Okay. What do you mean by it's not as elitist? Because I believe, coming from someone who's in theater myself, it does feel like an elitist industry. I mean, come on. It's so 1%. It feels like um, you have such a leg up when you have more money. And that isn't to say that isn't the same with every industry. It just feels like a a particularly elitist, not really kind of a ground up kind of industry. I think it really depends on how you choose to see it. Is it about connections? Absolutely. Do you have to know people? A hundred percent. That I will not doubt. But I think the elitism and this idea that you have to go to, not to name drop schools, but like Michigan or Carnegie Mellon or NYU or these expensive and ostentatious schools, I don't think is as important anymore. It's not the standard because the way that we're finding talent isn't just cattle calls anymore. Like look at Broadway World's Next On Stage. There's a huge dance competition that I was in a meeting with Broadway executives that's like, hey, you went to Syracuse, there's this kid who's in the top five, do you know him? And I was like, yes. And you were like, I hate him. Cut. <laughs> but they said, he, you know, in his interview, he loves Susan Stroman. She's one of our artists. Should we connect them? It's about, you know, having access to a camera can unlock things for people in a way that people didn't have before if you want to do something and you take the time to learn the industry to know who's making the thing that you want to be a part of it doesn't matter where you went to school it doesn't matter how much money you're making so yes there is elitism but i think if you have the passion and the drive you can surpass that and bypass that. It just is harder and more work. And I agree with that. Would you say, I mean, we're coming from two different experiences. We both have very different programs, theater programs. Let's talk about how yours was. Because I know yours was a lot more new age than ours is. I would not say that mine is new age. I would always just consider the values of yours new age. I think I had very liberal professors, but I wouldn't consider it new age. Yeah, so tell me about that, Ben. Um, I think because it is a smaller program. I mean, there was maybe 200 kids out of four classes and five areas of study what i think made our program slightly more new age is that we shared a building with a regional theater called syracuse stage and a lot of our students had the opportunity to work on the design team the stage management team or actors got to be in the productions of a working regional theater. And if you are an operational theater, you have to be doing current relevant work and abiding by 
protocol that is politically correct, ethical, like what? modern. Blasphemy. Um, in a way that college programs don't necessarily follow or have to abide by because professors will come in in the 90s or 2000s and then stay there forever implementing protocol that was appropriate in the 90s or 2000s and not develop. So in that respect, a lot of our professors had to stay with the times in their ethics and political correctness because we are held to a certain standard. There were professors that didn't direct for Syracuse stage or didn't act with them and were just working at Syracuse University. They did not adapt that mentality. And as has been featured in American Theater Magazine and has a lot of momentum right now, Syracuse Drama Department has come under a lot of fire for the racism that has been happening on the campus at large and the microaggressions within the Department of Drama and the fake or loose promises that have been made to the black indigenous and people of color and that's why i have a hard time saying that su drama is new age because there's still a lot of old and racist rhetoric and attributes that are tied to that community I mean, it's a fair point to say, and I think a lot of universities nowadays are struggling with those kinds of issues, and it's great to start having the conversation. Hopefully those loose promises can be firmed up, I mean, on all ends, not just on Syracuse's end. So moving past that, you did graduate last year. Yes. Um, Now you're working in the professional world. I am, which Um, is terrifying. (laughs) I mean, as it would be. I'm sure anyone listening is terrified of graduating college and what comes next. But would you say that your experience in the professional world falls fairly in line with what you experienced in college? Or is it just a completely different universe? I think it depends. What I was taught in classes work-wise makes sense. As a stage manager talking about communication and collaboration and time management... Those are all things that are important to any field. And although right now we aren't working in physical spaces together, it's important to have those skills to utilize. And the classes that I've taken have given me the ability to... I feel like I should explain what my jobs are. (laughs) I'm like realizing as I'm explaining this stuff. So... My experience in the field has been interesting because I've had the great fortune of being employed throughout my college experience. So I've worked in company management. I've worked in stage management. I've worked in producing. I've worked in London um, at their national theater in their producing worlds. 
I've worked in directing a little bit, and right now I'm working at a producing agency in their artistic and logistics departments. So what my university has taught me is how to really understand how to communicate and collaborate with these people and how to look at a project holistically and so understanding that when I approach each script it's not going to be the same experience and that doing a paperwork for an experimental radio play is going to be different than the paperwork that I do for a movie musical even though the information that I have to put into that paperwork is the same. Which is very telling of not just where you're at in your major, but just, I think, something that we're all dealing with at the moment. I mean, it's such a life issue at the moment. Everything is still happening, especially if you go to school. Hopefully you're still, I know that there are professional actors still booking. I've, we've talked with a few in our program but this concept that it's the same kind of thing, you got to approach it a different way with Zoom University and therefore Zoom performance productions. Um, it's something that we're all struggling with. So No, for sure. And that's a huge part of it is having meetings with people via Zoom, knowing that you're in four different time zones and being able to understand how that's going to impact the day's work. It's not necessarily that I enjoy paperwork or that paperwork is my passion. And the logistics of this all, of course, in yeah. terms of like the logistics of approaching a project with these different mediums. Yeah, that's not the thing that gets my blood flowing, but... What excites me is this idea that we are entering our own renaissance in history, like public education history, when we're reading about the bubonic plague and influenza, and they're like, and then the renaissance, and the artists came out, and they made these things out of crazy out of their pain <laughs> out of their pain but out of these materials that no one had ever used before mm -hmm. and i'm like holy shit we're gonna get to do that i'm gonna be a part of a generation that makes something wild that's so cool because i had a question on here that was like how do you have the motivation to work over zoom it's so hard, especially as a student, to find that motivation. But if you really think about it, like, it's the calm before the storm, almost, even though we think we're in the storm, but in a more positive light, we have so much to look forward to and so much um, reimagining that we're forced to do at the moment. But imagine when we, get the, when we get the leash removed and we can run free, imagine what we're going to be able to accomplish without any COVID holding us down and with the new knowledge we know. And with this new idea of what society 
can and should be, especially because we're at this melding pot of not only COVID and this medical pandemic, but also the social justice and the liberation of a community of indigenous, queer, black minorities coming together and being able to release that pain into the world, into a space that can embrace and accept that Mm -hmm. is such an invigorating thing. And that's what motivates me to sit behind a desk in a cage-like room for 12 hours doing paperwork. I think the most iconic space in the entertainment world was Studio 54. Oh, yes. A club that lasted less than three years. It existed for 33 months. That is so... I never... I didn't even know that. Wow. It's... But it's iconic. Its legacy lives on. Yeah, the legacy, of course. But the reason it was built, the reason they could have such an impressive and intense location or excitement is because the city was in decay. The Son of Sam murders were rampant. They never caught the killers. It was the 80s and the AIDS epidemic was running rampant Mm -hmm. among the city. All of the wealthy white elite were leaving because they were so scared. And so many artists and young queer people were coming to the city with this mentality that was like, if I'm gonna die, I might as well have fun. (laughs) And they came, and they came in hordes to the city the same way they're doing now and taking up space in Harlem and downtown. And the people who started Club 54 or Studio 54 saw this and capitalized on it. And then it became this place where celebrities and regular people culminated and it was this special space but it started out of a pandemic and fear and loneliness Mm -hmm. so where do you think the industry is heading (sighs) there's a lot of places it can go and the zeitgeist is ever changing and that's what i think makes being particularly in theater over any version of entertainment so exciting. Television will always be television. It's always going to be something you watch on your screen. And no matter how visually appealing a show is, it's something that is separate and away from where theater, it's there. Mm-hmm. It's you are in a space with people, and right now that sounds so dangerous and gross. But there are things like um, Sleep No More, which is the story of Macbeth told in the 1920s in an experimental hotel. There was Sweeney Todd in a pie shop. You can do anything 
anything. You just have to imagine it. And so I can't tell you where the industry is going, but I think it is moving with the liberal movement and with a more conscientious mind to tell stories about the greater public and not just about white dudes having a hard time. What I want to see is stories about communities that have always been a part of America, but have yet to be told. And I think with the constraints that we will have on social gatherings, it's going to make the way that we perform theater even more experimental and interesting. And I think as we are allowed to be back in enclosed spaces safely, people are going to start changing the form in which we live in a space. We are heading forward in this industry in two different aspects, socially and in terms of medium. Yeah. And that combination is strong. And I think... Now what will happen is that proscenium theaters, things like that, because of these COVID guidelines, at least for the beginning, they're going to feel foreign and no one wants to work in a foreign space, but we won't have a space that feels comfortable anymore. So more people will be empowered to move past that space and think about, well, what else can we do? I mean, consider prosceniums are as old as the renaissance or as old as like medieval theater yes it's like what can we do what can we and what can we bring back and it's also going to change the commercial model because regional theater and off-broadway theater don't rely on ticket sales to continue their theater because they have a building that is their own So you're saying that there'll be no more shows that are really bad, but just keep going for money? Yay! I mean, one could only hope. It's interesting to think off-Broadway theaters like New York Theater Workshop, Playwrights Horizon, who own the building that they live in, who can rip up the the seats and change the space entirely have the opportunity to really redefine how we experience theater the way that Broadway houses could, but they need the right show with the right amount of money to do that. I mean, look at what Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark did. It attempted that, but it costed them so much money. It was the biggest flop that we've probably witnessed in our lifetime in Broadway, And that's what they tried to do. They tried to reimagine a theater that wasn't built for what they wanted to present. It's the same thing with Great Comet. And that had a huge fan base behind it. That had our artistic merit the same in a way that Spider-Man did it. But the money wasn't handled correctly and it flopped. You have these older white men who own Broadway theaters. And the thing that's so interesting to me about Broadway theaters is they're all really owned by the same three people. So once 
It's dominoes. Once one goes under, they all do. And so it's really going to change how all the games get played because producers don't own the theaters. So they are not the ones in trouble Mm -hmm. and they are not paying their bills because they have taken out insurance. There is so much backlogging that the men who own Broadway theaters have the potential of going bankrupt. And the producers can break even, giving them the freedom to do whatever they want. Well, I mean, I just miss... I just am tired of seeing... Frozen, and then Beetlejuice, and then Waitress, and then Mean Girls. And I'm like, I could just go on Netflix and, and see, see all, all of those. Um, it's, well, Disney Plus in Frozen's case. But I miss shows like Crybaby and experimental things. Like, I remember hearing about how bad of a flop Crybaby was. And then I was, I never thought it was good because financially it flopped. Then I looked at it and I was like, this is a fantastic show. Like, I miss things that take something we know and turn it on its head. It's it's so much more rewarding. It might not be as enjoyable in the moment. Financially, it might not be as successful. But when you think about how it fills your soul as an artist, it's so important to have those things to lean on, which I feel like you don't get that anymore on Broadway on Broadway in, in general. Oh, I don't like Broadway. Oh, well, that's a controversial opinion. That is a very controversial there's opinion. There's nothing... Okay, there is... Uh, I don't want to say there's nothing wrong. It's just so... It's uh, I consider Broadway at this point the radio equivalent. Like, the equivalent of public radio when you like music. Like, no one likes public radio anymore. As any person, at least in my friend group, takes so much value off Spotify, which spits out these smaller artists that you don't know, but their music is so much more meaningful than these top 40 radio hits. And there's an important point to be said about theater, and I must mention this. During COVID, it is not Broadway that is restarting. It is the professional theater companies that lie outside of Broadway that are restarting at the moment and reimagining theater during a pandemic while Broadway stays closed. And people don't recognize that enough when they tell a musical theater major, and this is no offense to anyone who's ever said this to me, because it's still a compliment, but to anyone who says, oh, so you're trying to make it on Broadway whenever you say you're a musical theater major, Broadway is not the end goal. It's so important to recognize that Broadway is not, it's not the best, it's the most popular absolutely and i'm really excited that now it's that's kind of been dismantled people now recognize that broadway is not the heightened end goal of any actor's dream it's just there i disagree with you there i think broadway will always have cachet there is some cachet as in has clout Yes, no, no, it will always have clout, but I think people recognize that it's not just Broadway anymore. 
I think people are starting to warm up to the idea that there is a life behind Broadway, which is exciting. And again, I am somebody whose dream is not to be on Broadway, although I work for a Broadway producing company. I, it's where the money is. It's what pays my bills. And that's also, I think, a really important conversation. Broadway isn't necessarily high art. It's high commerce. And it's what funds Manhattan as an entity. Mm-hmm. And it brings in tourism on a major scale. And so it's a part of what makes New York New York. Um, But it doesn't have to be the end-all, be-all with theater. And it's definitely, while I was in school, a really hard pill to swallow talking to the grandparents or the aunts and uncles at family gatherings that are like we're gonna see your name on broadway and it's like that is not my goal but i know you don't care enough to hear the niche world i want to live in i also think that their intent was not to say that you'd make it to broadway it's just their intent to say you'll be successful absolutely and that's the only way they know how to say it Absolutely. And that's why I never take offense when someone says, you're going to be on Broadway one day, even though I would love to be on Broadway. And I'm sure I will be auditioning for Broadway shows until I can't move my legs anymore. (laughs) Absolutely. Now, let's move on to another thing I wanted to ask you. We are in a industry and we are in a job space where we are all doing things that we once used to do as an extracurricular. And it used to be an art form, still is an art form, but now it is a job and it changes the context of your work significantly, whether you want it to or not, or whether you intend to or not. And I know I struggled with this going to school where I was like, well, crap, this is now work. It's not the same. It's not as fun. And it's not as fun because I wasn't doing it. I had to switch the reason I was doing it. And I had to switch my idea of it around. Now it's much more fun for me. But there's that learning curve. So I wanted to hear about your experience with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know if there was ever a singular moment where I was like, this isn't fun anymore. I think there was just times where I was like, I am exhausted by doing this but I still enjoy it it still is the only thing I want to be doing now was this enjoyment like while you were doing it because I found that I always enjoyed it in the moment it was when I stepped away that I was like oh I can't do this anymore that's when you forget about the enjoyment so did you still enjoy enjoy it when you weren't in the space or was it I always enjoyed it even walking away Mm -hmm. honestly I don't love stage management I love the skills that I learned from it but 
And you know from knowing me in high school, it was never the thing I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. It was the field I went into to learn the people to move forward. Because nobody wants to hire a 22-year-old director. It's just, it doesn't matter if you have a degree in it. Nobody wants you. That's fair. Because you're 22, you don't have life experience. How are you supposed to create a world when you haven't experienced your own yet? And I 100% agree with that. But I am somebody who suffers from horrible anxiety and depression. And the only thing that pulls me out of it is my work. Is the fact that this is what I, it's truly what I live for. I'm also very lucky to have family who not supports me in a financial way, but in an emotional way. My parents understood that if I did a job like that, there could be a day that I wake up and decide life is not worth living anymore. And that's a very plausible reality that my parents knew if I went into theater I would wake up every morning and figure it out because this is what I have to do and something that's always been really hard for me is that my peers were at school not only to do theater but to have fun and let loose and like be kids And they never really understood that that was what work was for me. Like, that was my sense of euphoria. And that I didn't need to, like, do shrooms or trip acid to feel that. There was a sense of ecstasy from being at work. I never have felt more alive. I am so grateful that I get to be in that space and that I'm surrounded by people who are putting all of their energy into being a part of something. And that when I come home, I'm coming home to parents who understand that this is my quest. This is the thing I have to do and I don't have to explain myself to them. They get it. They know. They see me. And even if they don't totally understand, they respect me and they understand that if I wasn't doing this, I would not be here. So kind of on the note of enjoying what you do, I want to talk about something that we both have struggled with, imposter syndrome. Dun, 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 dun. Oh, God. It's scary. It's scary. I still struggle with it. There's, like, so many times where I'm like, I would just be a better actor if I thought I was a good actor, right? Oh, I, absolutely. Like, and, I mean, of course, you can't relate to that from an actor standpoint, but I'm sure it's the same. No, I got into theater programs as an actor, and I couldn't do it because I just didn't believe in myself. I couldn't put myself in that world. I was like, I know I will never, no matter how much therapy I go to, I don't have the confidence to do this. Mm -hmm. 
Like, it doesn't matter. But I know I have to be in this world. And imposter syndrome is hard in any field. Like, it's hard to feel like you don't belong somewhere. And kind of circling the wagon back to the beginning of, like, this sense of elitism, as somebody who went to an elitist institution who graduated cum laude and who got all of these accolades after graduation and while at school received, you know, internships and accreditations and projects that were given to the quote-unquote best slots of students the same way like a lead would be it's hard to still walk away and be like oh yeah I'm terrible at what I do it's hard to walk away and say that yeah it's still hard to feel like I can look at my resume and although intellectually I know it's a glowing resume I hate it. glowing person, baby. (laughs) But, like, I look at it, and I'm like, oh, this is terrible. I'm never going to be employed. As I sit here, employed. Yes. Like, it's just this constant thought process of fear, and it's just heightened by our industry, Because our industry, unfortunately, is built on the back of competition, which is something that I don't fully understand because we laud ourselves as this community of collaborators and artists and we are an open-minded space that's constantly you know, quote-unquote safe spaces and we're LGBT positive and we are so open. And yet, you know, the first thing people make fun of it is that theater bitch with her Laducas who's like, oh, you're flat? Oh, I think... Oh, were you at that other audition? Did you put on weight since then? That's like, you know, on the outside, we're this very community-based group. But on the inside, we are so callous and so demonstrative. And it's it only feeds that idea that, like, none of us really belong here. Now, let me say something. I have not only experienced very strong imposter syndrome recently, but I've also been working with, well, I've been reading, uh, of the quarantine reading I've been doing, a lot of it's self-help. Like, uh, we had to do a project for our acting class, which was kind of like this, um, uh, do you know Khalil Gibran's The Prophet? Mm-hmm. Wonderful. We did Khalil Gibran's The Prophet, and we all had to pick a chapter. Do you know them that well? How I don't do know them know that well. I did Laws, which is funny because I thought it was going to be about laws. It wasn't. It was really about judgment, but it was just called Laws, which I found interesting because it was one of the only chapters that didn't have to do with, didn't have to do directly with what it was titled. 
And this whole concept is is that it was in regards to laws that people were making, but it really diatribed right away. It really channeled right away into you impose limits on other people based on what you think of yourself and based on what you limit yourself to be. I remember one of the lines in it is, what about the cripple who hates dancers? And like things like that. And we often find that with this industry, when someone tells you to just not care about what other people think, that sounds impossible. And I truly believe it is impossible if you think about it that way. What has helped me so much with my view of myself and with my view of others is how is my judgment on someone else a reflection of what I feel about me? And that has helped me mounds in my opinion of myself as a person because once you realize the subconscious ways that you think you're lesser than it just opens up your mind to be like that makes no sense um i mean for example i remember showing up first week to our dance class dance classes in our school go by a four level system and a lot of times levels are split up into low and high I showed up to a tap class, which is split up by low and high. I was in four high, and there are freshmen in this class because it's not truly policed who shows up in the end. If you're a musical theater major, you can really go wherever you want if you slide past the right people and or if they let you. And I remember saying, why the heck are these freshmen in the highest level of tap? How are they going to learn? How are they going to do this? My points might have been valid. It was all from the root of that I was told I couldn't be in four high when I was a freshman. That was the root of it all. So I imposed what I held myself to onto someone else, and it made me more miserable to complain about them. But as soon as I realized that, and this was all happening while I was picking up this chapter, and while I did that to myself, I was like, whoa, that was all just because I couldn't. And as soon as I realized that, I had no qualms about them being in that class. It truly just released from my mind. I stopped caring. So I think it's important with the imposter syndrome and thinking you're not good enough because with imposter syndrome comes judgment. And you're right to say that our theater, that the theater industry is very judgmental. Don't worry about other people judging you. Worry about how you judge other people. Because that's not what other people judging you doesn't really bother you once you learn to stop putting judgment on others. As soon as I realized that, now whenever someone judges me or ever feel the judgment of someone on me or I'm like paranoid and I think someone's judging me, all I have to do is do the same thing to them. Well, what do they think about themselves that they're judging me like that? And coming from it from a personal standpoint of how I do it first and then looking at how others judge me in return, it comes a lot easier than just from face value. Oh, don't care about what other people think. Think first about, well, why are you thinking that? And then it comes. It's so, it has helped me so much. And I mean, you judge yourself with such odd criteria. Maybe not even hard criteria, just bizarre criteria. And it makes no sense. And when you see others do it, you're like, that's ridiculous. But when it's internal, it's really hard to avoid. Truly, imposter syndrome is an unsolvable question. Yeah, and it's just such a weird 
it's a weird puzzle of psyche melded with career choice. It's human nature to feel like you don't belong somewhere. It's human nature to feel like your puzzle piece doesn't fit. Because what does that do? It propels you forward. Yeah. It's the chip on your shoulder that cont- that creates that forward motion. And it's I think it's p- also part of the reason why you see like married couples are more comfortable and they have less of that forward motion because they don't have that feeling of being alone anymore. That imposters, they fit with somebody. So then suddenly, even those urges or those feelings aren't so loud anymore. So how would you say that you have helped improve your imposter syndrome in terms of how have you gained more confidence? And in moments where you couldn't gain more confidence, how did you fake it till you made it? I think, honestly, it's been a wild ride. Like in high school, I had a horrible eating disorder. And it gave me this sense of control that I really needed because I felt like Due to my imposter syndrome, my life was out of control because I didn't own my own worth. Um, And then I went to college and I started to understand how I can own my own body, if that makes sense, and that I am my own person. I also went to therapy, which I highly recommend to everyone. Even if you don't have mental illness, just talk to somebody. That's my soapbox. I digress. But I started talk to, to someone professional. Sorry, talk, I need yeah. to say that. Talk I was to like, s- don't just rant to your friends. I've tried that. It's really toxic. No, no, no. Oh my God. No, no, no. I'm saying talk to a therapist. Mm-hmm. I am not saying rant to your friends. I'm saying see a professional. Thank you for clarifying. That's very important. I just important. saw myself in that st- sentence and no, I was no, like, no. I must interrupt. No, absolutely. Thank you. But no, I... Started talking to a professional and understanding. I also started living on my own. I went to college and I started to understand that myself as a person is not a concept. I'm not just this brand that needs to be sold to the entertainment world. I am a person with ethics and the art that I make and consume, although it means so much to me, it is not all of me. And so the way that I built my confidence is that I started to build the world around me and I started to really develop stronger friendships and better eating habits. I started reading more than just plays and biographies about artists. I went outside more. I started hiking. I just 
created a life for myself that didn't only exist in a theater. I had almost like an abusive relationship with theater because when I was on a show and in a position of power, I was so high and mighty and I felt so successful and then it would end and I wouldn't know when I was working again and I would feel so down on myself and distraught and I realized that like if I didn't have a life outside of this space I was always going to feel like this and I needed to have something to talk about in interviews and at parties because unfortunately part of our business is going to parties like having I had to have this conversation with my mother which was so interesting that we were talking about budgets and I in my budget had like $150 I mean this was before COVID of money to go out so that I could get drinks with important people or get coffees or whatever so that when Susan Stroman or Rachel Chavkin or Jeremy O'Harris or these like icons in the industry are going somewhere and say kid are you coming I can go and That is unfortunately part of, again, that elitism and wealth privilege. And I needed to have other things at these types of parties to talk about. Because nobody at a party after a show wants to just talk about the show. They want to talk about music or books they want to talk about things that move them that isn't just theater and it wasn't until I realized that I am a person I am not a brand or a concept to sell I am a full-fledged individual that I really started to understand that like Of course I have imposter syndrome. And I'm always going to have that feeling. I'm always going to think that I don't belong. And what I have to tell myself, or what I do, I don't have to, but what I do tell myself is that, no, I do not belong here. This is a room full of old white dudes who think that because they have all of the money they can also withhold all of the power no i don't belong here but it is my responsibility to fight to stay here and usurp that power and sometimes it will get me wonderful accolades from people that i really respect and admire in this field and sometimes it will get me treated like dog poop and understanding that it doesn't change the fact that it was still the best that I could do 
you know, a lot of times, even if you do your best, I feel like our generation will still say they're sorry, even if you did the best you could because it's not good enough for the other party. But when you apologize to somebody, also apologize to yourself and accept that apology. Know that you're like, okay, I did the best I could. I'm sorry I put myself through that stress. And now the same way that I want that person to let it go, I am also going to let it go. And I feel really lucky that at 22, after graduating in May, that I have found a company that respects me and treats me like a person and thinks that my best is good enough and helps me to see that I'm not an imposter in this field. I am a valuable asset. Again, circling back to a question you had asked me with like, what was the most important thing you learned at school or what was something that was a big takeaway? And I have a professor, his name is Rodney Hudson. He is one of the scariest people you'll ever meet, but he is the most intelligent person. And the the wisest words he ever taught me were, you will never change someone's mind with an argument. You will always change their mind with a story. And that's why theater exists. Because that is how we are going to change people's mind. We're not, you, you bought a ticket. You wanted to be here. Nobody is yanking your chain to sit in a comfy chair. And so if you can just sit and relax and experience somebody else's struggles without some red-faced teenager being like, you suck. If you support XYZ person, we can associate. It's not that. That's not what art is. Art is connecting point A of this concept with this concept and giving you the opportunity to draw your own conclusions. We want you to leave these spaces asking more questions, but you're not going to put that on Broadway. Like seven-year-old Sally isn't going to come in from Iowa to see a show about a guy who's like losing his home to gentrification. No, she wants to see Beetlejuice. Mm -hmm. She wants to see the guy with big green hair and all of the animatronics as she should. And that's why I don't get down on Broadway, because Broadway exposes those little kids. Like, I think Fox Live, the shows aren't great quality. They're not doing anything amazing but the little gay kid in kansas who's living with parents that hate gay kids who gets to see 
a homosexual man on television sing and dance, that is moving. That gives you hope. And that's why I think all theater is important. So at the end of the podcast, I always ask one final question, which is if you were in my shoes, you were interviewing yourself, what would you ask yourself that I haven't? And then go ahead and answer that. I think the question I would ask is like, what is your biggest pet peeve in this world? And so my biggest pet peeve is when people join this field to like get famous and not because they're passionate about the art form. Theater is the poor man's craft. It is made by poor people for the wealthy. Like it is not a get rich quick scheme. And so when people are like, I'm here to be a star, I'm like, girl, what are you doing? I think it's part of it is because of the undying passion I have for this and the fact that I am willing to risk everything to make, to advance the art form. Like, I don't need to be famous. I do not care if my name is not remembered. I just need to know that the energy and effort I put into this stratosphere pushed the form forward. I mean, that's a great point to be made. I think when you're talking about the industry, sometimes we forget to talk about the social hierarchy that wants to be achieved. Oh, there's absolute like it is the entertainment field. Mm. People want to be stars on their own Netflix show or they want to be a brand like Ryan Murphy and have their own aesthetic or have a podcast or have a podcast or have a YouTube show. And I don't think it's wrong to want to be successful. I think it's wrong to want to, when they are exploiting whatever it is they are in, whether it is theater or film or podcasts, and they are just using that platform to become famous. Yeah, that's, that's my soapbox. I will end it there. It's your platform, not your soapbox. Let's stay on brand, people. If Um, given the platform, that is my 100 minutes. um, Thank you very much for coming. Actually, one final question. Yes. Where can people find you? People can find me. I am mostly on Instagram at rachel.ack. That is where I post the most. Um, you can also add me on Facebook, Rachel Ackerman. I thought you were going to say LinkedIn. I was like, no, that plays very I, well in with the theme. I don't use LinkedIn. I don't believe in it. Oh, well. Again, another hot take. An but issue yeah. for another time, yeah. 
Add me on Facebook, follow me on Instagram, or on Twitter, also Rachel.ack. I have very lukewarm opinions. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I will see all of you guys next week. Thank you so much for listening. It's been a wonderful night. Oh, it's been a wonderful day whenever this comes out. It's been a wonderful sometime during the day, guys. We love see it. See you soon. <laughs>